Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Empowering First podcast. This is a very exciting episode because we have, for the first time, two guests who are not a part of Empowering First, but they are still two very impressive women. They're the most intelligent and kind people I've gotten to meet at Emory. They're not paying me to say this either, but I'm going to let them introduce themselves before we get started talking about a very interesting topic, including being first-gen and a Black woman in um, the university world and academia. So I think I'll just let Joy go first, and you can mention your name, your year, your pronouns, what you're studying, and then your favorite song, so I can judge you for it. (laughs) Uh, I love that. Um, So my name is Joy Knowles. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I am a third year at Emory. Um, I am first generation and low income. Uh, I am studying, I'm a double major in psychology and African-American studies. And right now my favorite song is BS by Janae Aiko featuring her. I like that version better, but I also like the version with Kehlani. So hopefully you're not judging me too much for that. I think it's an objectively fantastic song. It's good. It reminds me of moving out of Emory when it got kicked out last year because like that's when the album had just come out and I played that song over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> I guess bad memories, but good ones at the same time. But I also say I'm also first generation low income. I'm a mentor for Empowering First. Um, Siwad Moomin's my name. I'm a second year studying political science and a minor in sociology. And my favorite song at the moment is What's Love by Rod Wave. And there's this line in it that goes, she wants a Birkin for every time she was hurting. And I've just, that truly just spoke to me. So it's my favorite song. And then I guess Dr. Easley, you can do the same thing with your pronouns, what you teach and research, and then also your favorite song. Yes. So Dr. Easley, she, hers. Um, I am an assistant professor in African-American studies and also grad faculty in sociology, trained as a sociologist. Um, I teach courses like racial and ethnic relations, demography of Black America, and sociological imagination through TV. Um, It's so hard to pick a favorite song. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go with Spirit. (laughs) from Beyonce from the Lion King soundtrack because that playlist saves me in the car with my son. He will quiet down, calm down. (laughs) So that's what I'm going to go with for today. (laughs) Good song. There's so many songs on that album that like make me like I have self-esteem. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I also do really like that song. And then, I invited Dr. Easley to come because at the beginning of one of her classes, she did let me know that she was first gen, which I think was really important for, I guess, teachers to let their know their students because it really um, adds like a relatability aspect. And then Joy, Joy is just so much fun. We, she also like had spoken up a lot in class. She always has like real ish to say. She's really kind. So that's why I wanted to have you guys back um, on here today to like talk about some important topics. Yes. I, I learned to do that from Joy. So she gets credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. She's kind of so much. <laughs> I guess to start it off, can, do you guys just want to talk about your background and upbringing and just your trajectory and navigating academia and 
like how you got to where you are today? Um, I'll go first because it's only a relatively short trajectory. I, uh, so I came in thinking I double major in psychology and neuroscience. Uh, and then I took biology and I realized I'm terrible at science. And that's what, that's also what my grade said. So I decided to, uh, I actually found African-American studies kind of by accident. I kept taking classes uh, just because I was interested in the subject and I decided to double major in it because I, I just really love the professors. Like that is just such a strong support network that I have at Emory. I am all like every time I speak to an AFAM professor, like I leave feeling like more motivated and more confident. So I really, I just really love that community in addition to like, I love the topic and everything. And I, so I realized I was first gen and low income kind of later on in my college. I mean, I've known I've been low income the whole time. <laughs> I uh so I didn't really recognize it until like about a year in um I went to a social reception for Emory Flip uh, which is generation low income partnership and then I eventually applied to be on the exec board because I was like why not that sounds cool and then I over time I've like learned more and more that it's something that I'm passionate about uh I like um, the first gen low income community at Emory is one of the communities that I feel like most understood, uh, most accepted. Uh, so that's why I like do work in it. And also, I also like things like this, where I am just kind of helping out with the community just by like being here and being in conversations rather than like, I'm planning events, I'm organizing this, I'm sending emails. Like, I think all of it's important. It's part of why I love the podcast. It's making, it's helping me to meet like so many amazing people and learning that we share um, such a relevant identity where the struggles are parallel is uh, even and often the same. I find that really encouraging. Um, and it helps me uh, both with like imposter syndrome, but also being grateful for the community that we have at Emory. So I'm from Trenton, New Jersey originally, um, though my family and I moved around quite a bit, you know, always in search of um, more stability and better economic opportunities. So I lived in Philadelphia when I was younger and also this really small town called Great Falls, South Carolina, before returning back to Trenton and going to high school there. Um I went to Duke for undergrad. Um, and for me, the fact that I was low income was very, very obvious. <laughs> as soon as I got there, I feel like it was a part of my identity from early on. Um, there were very few of us. Um, and I remember seeing statistics about, you know, how many people were in my class on full financial aid. And I think there were like 10 of us. So very small community, very evident that that was, um, a part of my background and how it, I was a bit different from the majority of the other students. Um, but luckily I came with a friend from high school. We grew up in, both from Trenton. Um, and so, you know, we kind of bonded around that. So I did definitely have a support system there. Um, but partially because of, you know, my race, my income background, you know, it became really important to me to think about these narratives about black people in America and so that's how I ended up pursuing academia. Um, and now I'm in the African-American Studies Department. And just like Joy, it's a really supportive environment. And I, I really did not think an environment like this could exist in academia. So I feel like I got really lucky to be here. Everyone's so supportive. Not every space is like that. So I really, really appreciate being in African-American studies and getting to know my fabulous students like Joy and Suad. So um, everything worked out. <laughs>
It is really great. I'm jealous because I recently changed my minor to sociology just because I felt like the department started to like really bore me. It was really white in some ways and I don't have enough credits right now to like just change it to African-American studies with the classes I have taken with you and with other professors I have like really enjoyed so far. Yes. Well, even if you're not fully a major, you're still a part of our community. (laughs) (laughs) I love the social professors. Like that's another group that I find very, very supportive. I've only taken two sociology classes. I wish I took more. Um, I think part of being first gen, but also most people, uh, I didn't really know what sociology was when I entered college. Um, I have a better understanding now. I love sociology, uh, but I, I think it is an amazingly supportive community, but it is also very white, uh, as is, I would honestly say, every department at Emory besides African American. Like I have never had a Native American or Indigenous one to my knowledge, but of every other race, but all of my Black professors have been because I'm in African American studies classes. It's still great. I'm really grateful for that opportunity, but I think it would be great if I could have like a math professor who was Black and especially at this point in America, like it's not, there are qualified people of color who can be professors. Um, Sorry, I'm going to stop because I have been thinking about this and thinking about it a lot. Uh, this is this part you can cut out because I don't want to flex too much, but I just got Melon Mays, so it's very much in my mind. Don't cut it out. (laughs) (laughs) Congrats. No, I think it's really, really important because even through my K through 12 education, I when I grew up in Minnesota, every single one of my professors was white. Well, I mean, my teacher was white, and then my first black professor I ever, teacher I'd ever had, was at Emory in college, and it really like changed the way I viewed, um, like what I can do, like what's possible. I think just like professors in general that look like you serve as role models of like the things you can accomplish. So that's why I think it's really important to like diversify the field. Yeah, my black professors at Duke were central role models. And that's probably the reason why I ended up in academia. Um, You know, coming from a space where you don't maybe have as many career role models. And then you have these really strong black professors that are doing amazing things and are really supportive. I think that's a big reason why I ended up in academia. Um, And I also just want to say, just to piggyback on Joy's comment, like um, the lack of diversity among faculty is one of my biggest pet peeves. And I hate that we always talk about like the pipeline, the pipeline. And I know that the pipeline is there and it's an issue, but if you just need one or two people, I feel like it's not that hard. Um, Especially if you're one of these top universities and that's not just Emory. I've seen that in a lot of different places too. I just wish that we did a better job of that. I agree. I think one thing, another thing that like I love so much about Emory that I, I think gradually is expanding but I, and I really hope it exists at other universities. Uh, I think identity-based classes are so critical and pivotal for a lot of people's, um, their identity. So I took Black Love with Professor Diane Stewart, uh, who is an iconic queen. Um, if you've ever with her, you know why. Um, and I took that my second year at Emory. Uh, and 
it just really like the material of the class was of course incredible but even just like the few conversations I had with Professor Stewart because back then I was like very afraid of professors and never went to office hours unless I thought I was like killing the class um like the few interactions I had with her were so meaningful um last semester I took Latinas and religion with Professor Guerrion um, Maria Guerrion and that was also just fantastic uh, and most of the class was Latinx or Afro-Latinx. Um, I have not taken Asian American history with Dr. Chris Suh, but I have had friends who have. And I think that classes like that, um, just like seeing people in the class and hearing them discuss, it really, I, I feel like I've observed them feeling so empowered by, about their culture, their heritage, their identities. Uh, and I think that that really needs to become a lot more commonplace. Like I think that all of those should be regular classes that are taught in the circulation. Um, and, but that's something that you can't really do there uh, to the same extent if all of your professors are white. That's really useful for me to hear too, like this, how useful identity-based courses are. I guess it's something that I didn't think about as much. Um, I mean, my identity always influences my research and what I teach, but it's just useful to know that the students want that and appreciate that it's good to think about i think even in your course that you're teaching now that i'm taking with you sociological imagination tv you do a good job of um like highlighting so many different identities but then i also really like the fact that you like you let students take agency in the like content in the fact that like we like do presentations every week and we really like lead discussions and talk about the things that matter to us. I think that's just one thing you've done really well, Dr. Easy. I wanted to say. This is, see, these meetings are always so helpful for me because I always <laughs> go back and forth with the presentations. Um, <laughs> like, well, should I present? Should they present? But I'm really glad that you're enjoying it and you feel like you're getting a lot out of it. And that's what I want. I want you all to take agency. And so that's why I always say, if you want to change the TV show, you want to change the episode, feel free, do it. Um, because I want to talk about what you all are interested in and then just connect that back to sociology. So yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Y'all who are listening, if you're Emory students, please take a class with Professor Easley. I'm not in this current one. It sounds amazing. Uh, I read the syllabus at the beginning of the semester and was just like in awe. I can't remember why I like could not take it, but I was just so excited reading the syllabus. I was not in the class. I loved having her last semester, like period. You know how like there are the professors who like you're in the Zoom university class and you're like, I'm sure this would be better in person, but you know, like their passion and energy is still conveyed over Zoom. Like the material is still like hitting at least a little bit. Uh, like that's very much her class. In addition to like any professor who can actually successfully teach during Zoom university is incredible. Mm -hmm. And also like you, you want professors who care about your well-being and are not like, I am always right. Like, professors who are flexible according to like their needs and your needs I I just love her I, I <laughs> so. very true you also you put me on to how to get away with murder by the way because I'm watching an episode for your class I can't stop <laughs> oh that's amazing so yeah there's always like this like disconnect between what I watch and what you all watch and so <laughs> I'm happy that you know I can introduce, introduce you something that's a little oh new God. to you I forgot <laughs> to tell you Swad, I finally finished it <laughs> Anyway, don't tell me how it happened. Homeboy just died in it. One of them. I'm very upset. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> another question I was wondering about, because you also touched on it earlier, how like mentorship has played a role in your experiences. 
has it like impacted the way you take mentorship roles as a professor at all? Do you think, Dr. Easton? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's really important for me to just be humane. I mean, we say this in African American studies. It's important to be humane and to just be there and be available. Um, and for me, you know, teaching and research is one thing, but I've always really enjoyed getting to know students outside of the classroom. Um, everyone in general, but also especially those first generation and low income students. Um, Cause just watching those students go on and do amazing things. It's just so inspirational to me. Um, it moves me. I try to keep in touch with them as much as possible. So when you all graduate, you want to connect on social media, please do. Um, I, I love just seeing, you know, the, the way things work out for everyone. Um, but yeah, so I just want to be humane as possible. And I've also had Black professors that have gone above and beyond for me. Um, and so I want to do that and be that for undergraduates and graduate students. I definitely would not be here if it wasn't for the Black professors that I encountered in undergrad and in graduate school. Yeah, I do think you do that really, really well. You have such like an inclusive cl classroom that I f I'm definitely a quieter student in my classes usually. So like the fact that I talk even once in every single one of your classes has been really impressive to me so far. And I think it just goes to show how well you do in making your students feel welcome and like their voices being heard. And I guess just any, do you have any advice to students for typically like reaching out to you and building a relationship who might not know how to go about it exactly? Yeah. On that note, can you speak additionally to students who are not necessarily in your class? Because one thing that I've noticed a lot uh, with my peers and my residents and friends uh, is that if they hear about a professor or a class that they're super interested in or hearing great things about a professor, but they're reluctant to reach out because they're like, I don't have that professor. Or like, say, I have a friend who's a chem major, but still wants to know more about sociology or their Black identity or even just speak to yeah. a professor with similar identities. Can you also incorporate that? Yes. So I'm going to say, I feel like you all probably hear this all the time, but I'm going to say office hours. Office hours are not just for students that are in the class, um, especially like in that first half of the semester. No one's in office hours. So we're there. We want you to come in. We want to have conversations with you. And I try to tell students all the time, like, we don't have to, you don't have to have a specific conversation. You can just come and introduce yourself. Um, and I feel like I can say that for my colleagues in African-American studies and sociology as well. Um, you can just say, you know, I just want to come in. I want to introduce myself, you know, see where the conversation goes. Like, it doesn't have to be a lot of pressure. You don't have to manage your impression. You don't have to come and worry about trying to impress us. Um, we're there and the time is available. So, you know, um, you can reach out to someone and just say, hey, when are your office hours and we can set something up. Um, so yeah, I encourage you to do that whether you're in the class or not. Um, it's really low stakes, I think, for most people. So uh, for most professors. So as long as professors have good reputations, I say take advantage of that. <laughs> Are there other things that professors could do to make students feel more welcome to come and interact in that way? Good question. <laughs> um, I, I think one thing that honestly helps me 
a lot. Uh, this, of course, varies depending on scheduling. Um, uh, I think um, the professors who stay after class, um, even if it's just for a few minutes, mm-hmm. uh, that's helpful for me. Um, it, I, it's both easier and also harder on Zoom, but I think that's helpful. Uh, in addition, one professor I have uh, actually, I don't have her anymore, but I'm still in contact with her because she's incredible. Uh, like <laughs> Professor Michelle Gordon, um, she has office hours twice a week, which mm-hmm. I find really helpful because, uh, for example, like right now, I think every single one of my current professors have office hours on Wednesday. Uh, so it's just nice to have a different option, like just in case that just helps with me uh, planning or say like I have a lot of classes on Wednesday. That's helpful. Uh, and I think also just, incur- um, maybe just the, or make an appointment with me, uh, Calendly, I find helpful, okay. uh, just, um, but also it's only so helpful because I'm, I don't want to necessarily be like, I am going to talk to professor easily for exactly 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So there's pros and cons. I, honestly, I guess just speaking about the different options, like increases the visibility, uh, mm-hmm. or another thing that I find helpful uh, the professors who like, if it's something like a small tangent, um, they're like, we don't have time to go into this, but, uh, feel free to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, when they're saying like, this is one thing that I would love to go off about, but we don't have the time right now. And I want to hear them go off about it. Then I at least have a mental note of like, yes, I would like to, yeah. oh, I also love how to get away with murder. I'm going to go to office hours and we're going to talk about Annalise Keating. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great idea. I would not have thought about that. But yeah, I have lots of things I would love to go off about. So <laughs> start adding that in. <laughs> I think, yeah, Joy, you had a really a lot of really great ideas. I think one thing for me is the concept of professionalism kind of mm-hmm. at, at least like amongst like professors kind of like places a big disconnect of like there's this hierarchy I'm up here you're over here you address me as this and we talk about these certain things like really like sometimes hinders my like even desire to build a relationship with some professors but I do think the like let's talk about things that aren't like related to the class material or I don't know just like being more open as a professor really does help um, help students feel like they can talk about anything I guess with a professor. Mm. That's good to know. I want to say something or just throw something out there that I think is useful for students to know just about the culture of academia. Um, I think that especially like for black, black and black female professors, um, a lot of times we get approached without the level of professionalism that other faculty get. Um, And so I think it's good to know just like when you're first, you know, sending a first email, you know, you know, Professor Easley, Dr. Easley, um, (laughs) just say those things. Um, And then just because, so I feel like sometimes people don't do that and then the professor corrects them and then that creates like an awkward situation. (laughs) And so I just want people to know that and just be aware and also just be aware of the fact that sometimes, you know, as black women, we have to do that more often. Um, especially for some of your peers, probably more so than the people I'm talking to now. <laughs> um, so that's just some context. So, you know, if it happens where it's just like, oh, well, don't do that. Um, try not to take it personally and, and try to understand like that extra context that's going on. Um, but other than that, yeah, I, I 
am totally fine with being informal. But yeah, so I don't know if that's helpful or not. I didn't want that to like, scare people, make them feel like they can't reach out to people. But I feel like that's an interaction that happens a lot. And I wouldn't want it to happen. And then that you all feel like you can't continue the relationship. Mm-hmm. That's why I wanted to say that. Mm-hmm. I, I like that a lot. I think my first year at Emory, uh, a lot of people were telling me professors are just people go get coffee with them go to ask them about their favorite movies uh they're just people and they like they like interacting with other people you're both humans and adults and I was like so that's wrong <laughs> that's <laughs> like they are they are humans who have been to college for 90 years and um and I I didn't I just rejected that advice. Um, but I but there's also professors who have told me to call them by their first name, which horrified mm-hmm. me at first. Um, but yeah, uh, if they tell you that, then definitely feel free. Yes. <laughs> I'm like almost at a point where it's not weird in the back of my brain anymore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm really glad you pointed that out because it is something that's very important to be aware of, but also uh uh, but also our being a Black woman is not separate from being a professor or from a job, things like that. So could you speak more about how uh, your identities, uh, whether it's race, gender, class, uh, being first gen, um, have impacted your career to this? You touched on it a bit earlier. Like, how did it impact your career earlier? Like, one thing I've noticed is I think that being first gen and low income manifests differently uh, between year to year. So like when I think of what can I do to help first-gen students, one thing that's helpful for me is to recognize like what are the first years going through? What are seniors going through? Because it's very different. So like first years have to buy a meal plan with unlimited swipes. So they're not going to be going through food insecurity the way that a lot of junior, things like that. So how have you seen the ways that these identities have become relevant? Um, has that changed over the course of your career or been uh, differently apparent? Yeah. Um, I think that those things have been salient the whole time, <laughs> but in different ways. Um, so as I said, you know, when I got to Duke, um, I was from, we used to always joke about it. I hope this doesn't sound crazy, but like, uh, I'm, I'm from the inner city. So I'm low income from the inner city. That's a very unique experience. Um, and so we would talk about it. We would joke about it. Sometimes there were some uncomfortable interactions having to do with that, um, but so being low income, being a woman, being a black woman, those things have always intersected for me. And they're a large part of why I do the research that I do. So um, one of my areas that I really focus on is mobility. So the fact that, you know, your parents have one class background. And then when you go on to start your adult life, you have your own class background. And for Black people, the differences across gender, the differences depending on where your parents are located, um, and and their differences by race. Um, And I'm really interested in that experience, both quantitatively and qualitatively. Um, And so my experience drives that. Um, And the other thing that I will say is that being a first-generation college student is one thing. Being a first-generation PhD student is kind of another thing because a lot of academics have academic parents, professional parents. And so you go through that same process of, you know, getting to know the culture. Um, And then, you know, when you get to grad school, a lot of times it is like, okay, we're peers now. And so figuring out how to navigate that. 
Um, and then, you know, a lot of people are doing research about poverty and about race, but that's not necessarily their experience. So it's kind of interesting to have to think through and witness that and think through some of the assumptions that people make. So, yeah, these things have been salient for me the whole time, but just in different ways, kind of like you said, Joy. Yeah. I have a follow-up thought. Um, yeah. I One thing that really out to me about what you just said, Professor Easley, uh, is people who are studying the group without the experience. I think you can do that in a way that's respectful, yeah. mm-hmm. but I don't think everybody does. But borrowing another phrase from Professor Carillon is uh, to make sure you're making the per- making them a subject of study rather than an object of study. And that's something that took me a long time to understand. I was like, subject and objects are essentially the same thing. But um, no, I think that's really important, especially when you're studying um, marginalized groups. Uh, I And also I think there can be a judgment that comes there, um, especially if you have all these layers of privilege and you're doing this research. I, yeah, I... Uh, I respect you for going through that <laughs> and also for doing that work in a way that's respectful. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really like that subject of studying not an object. And yeah, I agree. People who are not part of the group can definitely do the research. Um, and I will say, I also want more of us to have that experience or those experiences to be able to do this research. Um, the Academy has a long way to go for that. Um, everything in, in terms of gender identity, sexuality, race, class, all those things. Um, I want people who are impacted by those things in various ways to be able to study those things. So hopefully we'll get there one day. <laughs> okay, yeah. One thing I was thinking about, especially after you talked about um, how students sometimes address you not with like the respect you deserve. And one Like, whenever I reiterate my professor, which I know is, like, not always the most accurate thing, but, you know, you got to do what you got to do. I, especially for, like, Black female professors, sometimes I see the Mm. whole, they're not approachable, or they're really rude, or this, that, and the third. And I've taken classes with, I took one at least, where I was like, she's not rude at all. She's not, like, not approachable at all. And do you think there's, like, an element of like bias that goes into how they characterize you and how maybe if you don't act in the manner that they expect you to, it comes off as standoffish or unapproachable. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) My professors, you just, I, but of course that is what I would expect. I never thought about that element of it. Oh my goodness. We talk about this all the time. Um, Um, yeah, and I'll just keep talking about Black women specifically, um, but yeah, um, we get dinged on our course evaluations and and rate my professor, I feel like in ways that other faculty don't necessarily, um, have to experience, and those things matter for tenure and for promotion, um, so yeah, I, I agree with what you said, Sua. Sometimes it's all that you have, but I would definitely read those, take those with a grain of salt. Um, yeah, and some of this is about like, we expect women to be super nurturing and caring and like all these stereotypes. And so if a woman, you know, differs from that a little bit, then, you know, people are offended. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's definitely a, a really 
prevalent theme and something that faculty um, have to contend with. Um, yeah, yeah, it goes hand in hand, like like you said, with the the professionalism and the respect. It's almost like we're expected to lower our standards and do things that people would never ask their white professors to do. <laughs> Um, so yeah. I personally, I don't like rate my professors a lot because of all the reasons where it's not necessarily helpful. I personally recommend for y'all listening, uh, in group chats that have like a lot of people, you can just ask, has anyone taken this professor? Most of the time somebody will say yes. And then asking them questions or, I mean, I really ask people who you already know, but this also just asking them questions. And I like that because you can ask them follow-up questions. So when they're like, really, oh, they're really hard. I'm like, hard in what way? Like, is it mm-hmm. um, hard, uh, more essays, more tests? And like, you learn more. If you're asking those follow-up questions, you can kind of gauge like what that student, what that person's learning style is. So is it like hard because they got a bad grade or is it legitimately a hard, challenging class? Things like that. Just ask follow-up like, are like what are their expectations things like that Mm -hmm. that's just a side side note yeah that's good advice too yeah it really is and I think also when you ask it from people of like a similar identity to you or maybe a similar work ethic or with similar goals it means more than just like random people on my professor that maybe like just had a single or bad experience with the professor and that really like characterizes how they like view the professor instead of just like an a holistic view of the professor. I agree, definitely. Okay, so thinking about all of this uh, can definitely, I mean, thinking about it, but more so experiencing it, of course, can be stressful thinking about like students who are, who see you a different way because of their stereotypes in addition to people who truly just learn that racism still exists during summer 2020. Um, and in addition to <laughs> colleagues, like there's just so many levels of this. So how do you take care of yourself? Like, how do you make sure that you are um, healing and making sure that you are in a good place mentally, like primarily for you, but also so that you can continue to be a person? Um, Like, what are things you do for self-care and ways that you make sure you're not overwhelmed? Yeah, I feel like self-care has become like a part-time job in the pandemic. <laughs> like, I, I, it's so evident when I'm missing it and like, I have to just get back on it. Um, I'm going to say that my therapist has saved me in so many ways. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm snapping. <laughs> yes, yes. It, it, and I, I feel like all Emory students have access to counseling, Um so I definitely say take advantage of it. Don't um, shy away from it. Take advantage of it. There's a lot going on right now. Um, and so it's not weird to, you know, ha- go to therapy. Um, and you don't have to wait till you're in crisis to do it. That was something I had to learn. I didn't learn that until grad school. Go and go consistently and take advantage uh, of, of the services. Um, and then on top of that, I had to start working out um, when we hopped on uh, I was talking to Suat about Suat says she's a morning person. I am not, but I have been getting up at 7 a.m. three days a week to work out. Um, and it helps me get structured to my day. Um, it helps me get up. Um, yeah, so I think those two things. And then eating well. So like I said, if I don't do one of those three things, I feel the difference and I have to kind of like get back on track. Um, but it's been really important to make sure that I'm putting in the effort to do those things. And then also just finding things that you enjoy. 
Um, whether that is painting or running errands, I feel like that's my refuge sometimes. Um, <laughs> for a walk, um, I started hiking. I don't do it as much. I'm going to get back into it now that it's warm again. But like, try some of those activities, and and because you need to have things that you enjoy, um, especially when you're much more isolated than usual. That was so good. I love. I think it's really important to recognize that self care is not just face masks or like treating yourself, which are both things that can be self-care. Yeah. But it is, it is a consistent thing. Like the things that are quote unquote basic, um, like eating well or exercising, Mm -hmm. even if it's just a walk, like that is important in taking care of yourself as well. Definitely. And then sometimes like people feel bad for like doing some sort of self-care but I just feel like in my life if I'm not taking care of myself I'm not like accomplishing the the big things like my schoolwork or work or anything else to the best of my ability so if I'm not eating well if I'm not working out then like all other things suffer so I think self-care is just as important as studying for an exam or going to a new job so I agree definitely. And do, do you all feel that every student have access to the resources? I know there's like the counseling center, but um, I'm wondering if there are differences for first generation and low income students. Do they still have like decent access to those resources? That's a good question. Um, I, uh, for, so CAPS, which is Emory's Counseling and Psychological Service, I don't know very much about what it is at Oxford, but that's also an option. Um, just a thing I want to throw in. CAPS is actually minority white. Like our counselors are very, very diverse um, racially and in other areas as well, which I think is incredible, period. But also for a college, like that's amazing. So if you want a counselor of the same race or a non-white counselor, things like that, you can get that. Um, they also have a lot of groups uh, whether it's like dating groups or uh, personal skills group, things like that, anxiety workshops. Um, in terms of other resources on campus, uh, so personally, one of my biggest issues with Emory period is that we have a lot of resources, but we don't really advertise them well or communicate them well to students. So I feel like uh, I feel like there are some that exist, but I uh, so there's like uh, I don't remember the name of the office because they just changed their name, um, like student case intervention um something like that they help more with crises but in terms of like first gen communities I know that one that has been really helpful for me um is office of undergraduate affairs uh I think Pamela Stelly I think the world of her she's just incredible um and they have like chats slash office hours um what that basically for the same reason that professors do but I think uh, I think that being online has kind of hindered the ability for it to really be a resource in addition to most Emory resources aren't able to function the way that they normally would when mm-hmm. we're at the university. So I, uh, it's even difficult to think about what resources would exist in a normal year and what is present now. Yeah, that's helpful. I, just, I, I was saying, oh, you know, therapy is available. I always want to be careful about that because there are differences in access that people do have. So I just want to be mindful, but I'm glad to hear that there are some services. And I, I hope we're back on campus soon so that people can get back to accessing those things the way that they could during normal times. Well, thank you guys for all the input you've given so far. I think one of the last questions I wanted to ask Dr. Easley and Joy, if you have any input as well, 
is um, if you had any advice to give to your undergrad self or maybe just like your younger self in general, what would it be? Because I think it could apply to some of the listeners right now. Yeah, I don't know. I have a lot of things. Um, <laughs> no, really, I have a lot of things, but also very few. I, um, I, I would just tell myself uh, like first year to just be easier on myself. Um, I think that I still do this, but I think more so then, um, I was like, especially hard on myself. Uh, like everything is a learning curve, especially for being first gen low income. But, uh, I, I think that I was very, uh, reluctant to explore a lot of things. Um, and I think I would have uh, done that a bit more. So I would be like anxious about going to a club event by myself, uh, or things like that. I don't, only go if I had like a person with me or uh things like that I think that a lot of those things people are more flexible than I was giving them credit for uh like people are not going to stare at you and judge you if you uh eat alone in the cafeteria uh things like that uh which uh, that was never an issue for me because I love eating alone but I know that's a common one um I think I I do wish that I had uh, I think part of it is just time. Like as you, as you go through, you become like a lot more comfortable with yourself, um, and more confident. Um, but I, I wish that I had just, um, tried things more, um, in addition to recognizing that like in trying more things, you're going to quote unquote fail more. Um, and I kind of wish I was more reflective about how those failures, uh, how I could learn from them in that moment. I, I think I now with like retrospect but um I I like I wish I weren't as ashamed of those mistakes um and regretting a lot of those uh just those inconvenient things um I think that would have just helped uh with a lot of things like if I weren't ashamed of my grade then I would be more willing to go to office hours at that time um and then I would be willing to go to office hours of professors who uh, are largely the reason that I'm able to continue being successful at Emory. Um, whereas like my first, first year, I just avoided them, um, and was afraid of them all the time. So that's, feels like a lot. I feel like I just said a lot with with me, I think. And then one thing I was thinking of also was, also someone had brought this up in our empowering first meeting yesterday was feeling like you're underqualified to apply to internships or anything like that. And I wish first gen students knew, and I wish I even knew this even more now is that you, so many people apply to things that they're unqualified for, especially white men. So apply to anything and everything you can because you're just as deserving of it. Like your burden of proof doesn't have to be so much higher to show that you can do certain things. So honestly, I just I just wish we understood our capabilities. And I know imposter syndrome can get really high, especially during more difficult times. But um, I just I just wish we'd do more because we have such an interesting perspective and we've obviously overcome so many obstacles. So like, I just say, try new things, even if you think you're going to fail because failure will help you get better. And then sometimes you won't even fail. You're, you're exactly perfect for the certain position or the certain task. Those are really good <laughs> words of advice. Um, and in some ways I'm going to piggyback off of some of that. Um, I, I wish that as a low-income student, like I said, I didn't have as many career role models 
And so that's why the faculty became that for me. But I wish that I had spent a little bit more time just talking and meeting people, whether that's alumni or people at career fairs, and just asking them questions like, what do you do every day? Um, I feel like that was something that was missing. And that's something that I think that students should do, especially if you don't know what options out there. There are so many different jobs, careers, and so many different ways to use your passion. And so I just would recommend that. Um, the second thing is, like I said, I already said this, but I'm going to say it again. Therapy is not just for when you're in crisis. I, I think it's really helpful, especially if you're going to decide to go to grad school. Um, there's a lot of information out there about how grad school impacts people's mental health. So get a good therapist that will push you out of your comfort zone and support you through those transitions. And then the last thing I want to say, we didn't talk a lot about this. But I know that for a lot of first-gen and low-income students, um, we are a source of support for our families. And so I want to say two things. One is that, you know, it's good to have good boundaries. So that is the caveat. But I'll also say that in my experience, um, you don't regret the help that you give your family members. So when you look back on it and things change, um, I think it's something that's special and is important and should be honored. I mean, we should have safety nets from the government and from other places. Um, but I just want to say that, you know, put your oxygen mask on first, of course, and always, but you won't regret, you know, giving time and help to those family members who are around you um, who are less fortunate. Um, and so I wish that was something that we acknowledged and appreciated um, that low-income students come to the table with, with those responsibilities as well. And so I think it's important to just honor that um, and respect it. So, yeah. Period. Oh my goodness. I'm so grateful that you added that. I do think that that is one of the um, most specific things to my identity that I feel like there's less overlap with other identities. It's something that my peers who don't share these experiences relate to at all. Uh, like I know a lot of people are like, oh, my parents are going to be so mad at me for getting so much Uber Eats and things like that. And I, I truly cannot relate to that at all. Even yeah. when people make a comment about like, I have to do well in my classes. Like, I don't want to waste my parents' money. I'm like, that's, that's great for you that your parents are paying for your college. Uh, like all <laughs> these, in addition to just the day-to-day supports. And even for me, one thing I've thought a lot about is that, um, being distant from my family kind of removes it, which in ways makes it easier, but in ways makes it harder. Yeah. Um, and then I think, um, especially during a normal year, another experience that I've noticed is common within our community is like a going home for a break or something and mm -hmm. kind of remembering what, yeah. not like what your life was like before college, in addition to remembering what your family's going through. Yeah. Um, that's, an, that's what I think a really, really specific and unique stressor yeah, um, but I feel like nobody mentioned. So I'm glad that you, I'm really grateful that you brought that up. I appreciate that a lot. Very yeah, beautiful. I can relate to everything you just said, Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly, same. So I think we're going to wrap up now, unless anyone has any last thoughts, any last things they want to share. Okay. This was fun. I love this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so glad I got to do this. <laughs> um, you too. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you, Dr. Easley, for giving us some great insights about your unique experience about being first gen, low income and a black woman. And I know your perspective will um, help a lot of our listeners in how they go about their education and even after. 
And of course, thank you, Joy. You're always speaking facts. You're so wise beyond your years. It's kind of crazy to me that you're just a year older than me because you're just such a great like role model for me. I'm not even going to lie. And of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning into Empowering First Voices. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we wish you all the love, joy, and peace you deserve.